no Mickey show. Momentarily for class solidarity Cash circulating, give the masses back its currency Greed from elites, oligarchs, stay fed Deep state, faith fed, everybody break bread Racism, homophobia, sexism, religion And it's melted by we live in time to build a new system Unionize labor rights, highlight the issue Talking heads left is best, the saga continues Continues. The No Miki Show Hello and welcome to the Nomi Key Show. It is Fem Friday, Friday, August 6th. This is going to be a little bit of a special show for many reasons. Uh, I am, as many of you know who've been watching, I am in Greece right now and we are engulfed. And when I say engulfed, I am not, I am not overstating that. Um, that is not just rhetoric. We are engulfed in flames. In the background right now, every couple of seconds, you may see me turn my head to watch the television because there are over a hundred wildfires that have spread across the country of Greece. I, it's said to be near 150 uh, around Athens. There are wildfires and there, the country is not equipped to deal with these wildfires. A few years ago, I actually found myself in the middle of one of the, the most historic and uh, tragic wildfires that um, existed in, in, in Mati, Greece. I was driving back from Albania where part of my family is from uh, in Southern Albania. And I was driving back and I was supposed to take off on a plane uh, into Athens and the road cut off and I had no idea what was going on. Uh, no one knew what was going on. It wasn't just a language issue. I did not understand why this major highway was cut off and there were firefighters all around me and they were telling me to go in one direction and the direction that I was looking at uh, was towards the fire, which made no sense to me. And so my instincts told me to go in the other direction. And I went off on some side streets into a seaside village. And I tried to find, um, you know, I stayed somewhere to, to, to grab some food. And I learned that the road was going to be cut off at least until the next morning. And of course, I missed my flight. We had no idea how tragic that fire was. I had no idea how much in danger, how it was just you know, a few, really a few feet away from being in danger. Uh, I had food that night. I could not find a hotel room. I ended up staying in my car, sleeping on the edge of the road, right up against the water um, on the beach that night, hardly able to sleep, not understanding what was happening, seeing the fire in, in the near distance, and then learning the next day uh, that many people did exactly what I did, escaping their homes uh, and going into the water, sleeping on the beach, but because of the way that the smoke was flowing, um, they did not survive because the smoke is so overwhelming. Now there are hundreds of these situations happening around Greece. On Monday, Greece had the highest temperature on record at 115 degrees. The winds are blowing all over and the footage that we're watching is is. It's like the apocalypse before our eyes. This is not just Greece. It's happening in Italy. It's happening in Turkey. It's happening across the Mediterranean right now. But the number of fires that are occurring in Greece right now are historic and possibly the worst in global history. Um, I am incredibly emotional because I have been watching this footage and I've seen reporters uh, courageously following the fires, not understanding just as I didn't understand as a driver and as the firefighters did not understand in, um, in 2018, how extraordinary those events were and how many lives would be lost. I, we have no sense right now how many lives are lost, but what I do have a sense of is 
just the lack of support and lack of infrastructure and the stories that came out in 2018 and there was a leftist government, Syriza was in power. And what was um, later uncovered was that because of austerity, the fire departments were mainly volunteer and they were not doing the controlled burns that they had been doing for years and years and years. And austerity had forced them to cut back on those controlled burns. And then uh, just a year later, the right-wing government, the right-wing party, the coalition party that came forth um, and the right-wing media put out a documentary and put out massive smear campaigns blaming essentially uh, the massacre of hundreds of people who had died in those fires in Mati on the Cities of Government when the Cities of Government had not had any role in the austerity. And if anything, they fought it. They fought the austerity that was imposed on them in which, you know, basic governance was not able to, to, to occur. And so the fires spread more rapidly. And what we're seeing right now on air, as reporters are discussing this, as uh, people in the reporters in the studios, hosts in the studios are talking about it, is they'll say that some of uh, some of the locations that have pine trees, the pine cones will explode and they'll fly hundreds of feet away. And then another fire will pop up and it'll hit a home. And in a minute, that home will be engulfed in flames. I saw multiple people at this point on air as I've been watching this all day. Multiple people went in to try to hose off their properties and the, and, and the trees around them, thinking that by making sure that their property was wet, their homes were wet, the trees were wet, the fire would not take over. But it, it, it's, it's happening too quickly. The wind is too strong. And especially in these areas where there haven't been control burns, uh, it's just happening at a more rapid pace. Of course, record heat, winds, and austerity that has prevented control burns is creating this extraordinary crisis. And guess what the right-wing government is doing right now? Mitsotaki is the prime minister of Greece, has been caught in a scandal <laughs> hiding millions and millions of dollars in offshore accounts and in offshore real estate with his wife. He has been escaping the press, even though the majority of the press in Greece is right-wing. What has he been doing? He's been vac vacationing in Crete as the prime minister. The campaign that he led against Tsipras, Prime Minister Tsipras, who, by the way, is out at the fires right now. The campaign he led against Tsipras saying that he was not, you know, that he was responsible for the fires. Mitsotakis is now vacationing. He's away. This is the largest crisis Greece has ever faced, possibly the entire Mediterranean, possibly even the entire EU when it comes to wildfires. And I, I'm, I'm not entirely sure. I think it's too early to tell. Possibly the globe. There are too many fires that are taking place, too many communities, too many villages, and, and folks don't know where to go. They have no sense. Um, uh, many European countries have sent in firefighters to, to assist. And, and just to add to this, you know, we in Athens right now, where I am, we're under lockdown. We are being asked not to leave our homes because of the ashes, because of the air quality, because of the heat. Also, potentially because we don't want to put anybody at risk. You know, one cigarette can light up an entire forest. And there are many, many trees and forests, even in the Athens vicinity, because in Northern Athens right now, they are engulfed in flames. And of course, that's leading to the energy crisis. So uh, I'm asking for your patience on this show today. 
We've been dealing with a lot in the last few weeks since we've been here. Uh, because of the heat, I think Americans in particular um, more recently understand that when it's hotter, uh, air conditionings are on and the power uh, can be can be put um you know, it can be weakened. And as a result, Wi-Fi and um, internet can be very slow or, or set off. So uh, if we have any glitches today, we're, we, we might actually end up taking my video off and our guest video off. Uh, so please be patient with us. Very, very grateful to you for understanding. Uh, but these are extraordinary times. And, you know, I just, I, I just, I, the other day we talked about the fall of Rome. Uh, here we are in Athens, the birthplace of modern day democracy, Western civilization, and we're watching Greece burn, Rome burn, Greece burn. And I can't help but constantly think, where's our government? Why are we having fights over climate change, whether it exists? Why are we even doing that? Why are we even doing that? We know. <laughs> like, What is this? We, we are in the midst of the end of civilization. And if we actually do care about humanity, if we do care, we, uh, it doesn't make any sense to me at this point. It doesn't make any sense. There have to be emergency, emergency actions need to be taking place. I mean, I started with austerity because when you find out that austerity is what led to this because they weren't able to do controlled burns because the money that was put into the public fire department was taken out and it's all volunteer or mostly volunteer, that's ridiculous. We know the science. We know that when you have controlled burns, it prevents more wildfires from occurring. We know that in the States, we know that worldwide, but instead these oligarchs want to completely starve these countries from survival, starve working people, starve the conditions. And they also simultaneously don't want to pay taxes. But guess what? These people have villas also. And sure, they might have great insurance, but when a fire comes in in five minutes and puts your house at risk and your lives at risk, what are you going to do? Are you going to regret this? I'd like to hear a few billionaires who lost their homes in these fires. I'd like to hear them stand up and say, you know what? I was wrong because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you, climate change is a danger to everybody. Yes, if you have more money, you are more protected for sure. But when a fire ravages your community in a minute, and you have no time to escape, but to grab your most important belongings, possibly grab your most important belongings. But you get in the car and you don't know which direction to go because there's fires all around you. And the smoke is so thick, they don't even know where the fires are coming from right now. They can't see the sunlight. That is what the reporter said. She says, I don't know where to go. The reporter said that. One man knew that his neighbor was still in his home and he ran into the man's home. And I don't know if this man's alive still or if his neighbor was alive or survived and was yelling, Alexandria, Alex Alexandros, where are you? Meanwhile, dozens of people said that they left their, and men in particular were saying that they, their children and their families escaped and they're hosing down their homes trying to protect their life savings. This is already a country that has been put under a tremendous austerity where the working class has been suffering, where the minimum wage right now is extremely low. And you're lucky, you're lucky as a working person, especially if you're under the age of, of 40 and you're over-educated, most of them have degrees and master's degrees. And they're lucky if they're making 400 euros a month. Lucky. That's senior management. 
So if they have a home or if they inherited a home from their family in the country and God's being murdered, that's all they have. Austerity is what led to this. Austerity. Greece is just an example of what is happening in Spain and in Italy and in Portugal and in Puerto Rico and in Venezuela and in Argentina and Louisiana and in Detroit and in New York. It is happening everywhere. So we can sit here and fight online over who's the biggest leftist or debate procedural issues at DSA conventions, or we can actually step up in solidarity and say, you know, enough. And that is what Cori Bush did this week. Cori Bush. Congressman Cory Bush said, enough. I am standing on the steps of the Capitol and I am fighting off, fighting off any delays in an eviction moratorium because there's too much at risk. Incrementalism is killing people. Austerity is killing people. Our government is so beholden to the interests that have put them in power and they're so conditioned by the playbook of the last 40 years of neoliberalism that they don't know how to respond in a time of extraordinary crisis when literally an entire country is on fire. You have a lawmaker, a prime minister who labels himself as center right and who folks in the United States think is center left. He's on vacation in Crete with his shirt off. How out of touch are you? How out of touch are you? Ted Cruz flying to Cancun. Joe Biden, even sitting and pausing to think about whether or not to extend the eviction moratorium is out of touch. Kamala Harris going to Guatemala and saying, stay here. Stay where? Your families are at risk if they can't survive because of the economy. They can't survive because of, 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 of the crime. And they're risking their lives. And, and whatever savings they have and potentially whatever loans that they're going to be paying off in the next several decades to come to the border and potentially be put into camps. And Kamala Harris has the nerve to say, stay here while she's on stage with a fascist. This is the state of our political system. And let me tell you, no fights online are going to solve this. What Cori Bush did first ran, she ran multiple times despite what anybody told her. She raised that money on her own. She organized on her own. She did not give up. She did not stand down. Her car was shot at. She was unhoused. She had COVID twice. Her car was repossessed after her race before this one a couple of years ago. And she still did not give up. And then when she got to Capitol Hill, this is only a year after she was elected. Yesterday, she, was, uh, she won her primary. One year ago yesterday, what did she do? She sat on the steps of Capitol Hill to make sure that Joe Biden could hear and could feel. And she invited others. And really, where were the rest of the congressional members? On vacation? The fact that there were only five that joined her is an embarrassment. We have to step it up. The world is melting down. We have to stay focused and ignore anything that tries to divide us because they feed off of this. The right wing feeds off of it. The right wing parades with the pseudo left. 
the pseudo populists, because they feed off of these divisions. What is at stake right now is those who are housed. What is at stake right now are those who are losing their housing because of climate change. That is what is at stake. Food, water, and shelter, not clicks. Not who won a Twitter debate, or frankly, who won a DSA debate. I am a member of DSA. I am proud to be a member of DSA, but let me tell you something. The energy that we put into procedural motions should be put into sitting on the Capitol steps or your local Capitol steps or following Joe Manchin around to say, end that filibuster or following Kirsten Simmer around and saying, end that filibuster. Following her to her wine retreat where she is right now and saying, end that filibuster. That is where we need to focus our energy on the axis of power, on shaming them and making them understand, taking them to your livelihood. The, the, the fears of your livelihoods are what are going to hold them accountable. So I'm watching this screen right now as a house is engulfed in flames, as an entire neighborhood is engulfed in flames, as a highway is blocked, as many highways are blocked. And they cannot keep up with these fires. We cannot keep up with the crises that we are facing if we do not step it up. And that is what the show is going to be focused on here forward. How do we step it up? We have a wonderful show today. We have Sia Weaver here. She is a campaign coordinator for Housing Justice for All in New York City. She's from Rochester, New York originally. And she, of course, uh, is one of the leaders around tenant organizing in New York. And a little bit later, we will have Janelle Jolie on. Uh, she's the host of What's Left to Do. Very important. Uh, we'll be talking about what is left to do. All right, stick around. We'll be right back with Sia Weaver. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. We have been talking about rent <laughs> uh, for several weeks now, nonstop, and uh, mostly because we are, most of us are renters, uh, especially in New York City. I want to start off with reminding folks that the New York Times decided to prioritize asking a question about uh, to all the mayoral candidates <laughs> just a few months ago. Uh, what do you think the average cost of, of buying a home is in Brooklyn? And my immediate thought was, who the hell <laughs> buys homes in New York City? Why aren't they asking what the average cost of rent is? But then what it did was it exposed just how ridiculous our slate of mayoral candidates were, just out of touch in uh, that they were mostly <laughs> homeowners who also didn't understand what the cost of buying a home was. Um, Sia Weaver is, is well-known in New York City for being a housing justice uh, tenant organizer. She's a campaign coordinator for Housing Justice for All. Uh, she's been a campaign re researcher, a tenant organizer, and a housing policy advocate in New York State for over a decade. Uh, Sia, so yeah, thank you so much for joining us. You just authored a piece in Jacobin called uh, New York's Cancel Rent Movement Isn't Over. I sure as hell hope not. <laughs> so, Sia, yeah, um, I mean, it, it, this, is a, this is a New York-centered topic, but but I think it you know, a lot of folks can look to New York and say, you know, how can we look to New York as, as a model and uh, potentially learn lessons from the failures and successes of the organizing that's been done around housing justice. So um, I guess let's just start off with, you know, we have keeping keeping the Cuomo situation out. I mean, obviously it's relevant um, and we will talk about that later in the show, but we have a Democratic Senate now um, and a Democratic Assembly and uh, housing crisis, a, a, a very clear housing crisis that is 
inextricably linked to the real estate industry. Um, you'd think that maybe folks would understand canceling rent, but it seems like it's polarized, uh, the city. Can you explain why? Yeah, I think it actually goes back a lot farther than just the last year. It goes back, well, it goes back for decades and decades and decades and centuries. Um, Our entire sort of country is set up around the rights of property owners and not around the right to housing. So that's probably like the foundational ideological challenge here. Um, But shorter than that, let's start in maybe 2019. um, We were successful at passing um, very strong rent control reforms in Albany and landlords really started organizing. I think it sort of shocked the real estate industry just as much as it shocked the political establishment. Those are the same thing. Just as much as it shocked us, um, how much we were able to win in 2019. And we really started to see backlash right away. Um, Landlord organizing and backlash to that victory almost right away. Um, And, you know, cancel rent was just, I guess, a bridge too far for them, right? Um, I think some people see it just as sort of like a polarizing rhetoric. Some people see it as like completely unrealistic. Um, But it it was a polarizing message that really activated our opposition, that um, conjured up images of the mom and pop landlord and um, really, you know, brought people out of the woodwork to to fight back against it, um, which was, which was a little bit surprising. Okay. So surprising. Um, why is that? I mean, real estate is, is, uh, so powerful that (laughs) I can speak from experience. You don't talk about it in a campaign (laughs) because look, I'm after you. Um, no, but really, I mean, it, it, it is sort of like the third rail in New York city politics. Uh, so why is it surprising? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, you know, we were coming off a big victory because there is this like big democratic supermajority um, because like the tides changed relatively quickly around the question of um, can you accept real estate money and run for office? Um, you know, I think in 2020, it really felt like we had sort of turned the corner on that. We had it became it's sort of now um, impossible to run for office as a progressive and accept real estate money in, in New York. But, you know, the more things change, the more things stay the same. And I think some of the backlash to cancel rent was um, really a rude awakening around that for, for some of us. Um, the other thing is that cancel rent um, really exposes some divisions in the coalition that um, fought for universal rent control. For example, um, cancel rent is a universal program that uh, would have provided assistance to pretty much everybody. Um, And there is, we were able to, when we were talking about rent reforms and reforms to rent stabilization, there was a political consensus in Albany that really no longer existed for cancel rent. It was a political consensus of liberals and progressives and socialists who all had gotten pretty comfortable with New York's rent stabilization laws. some see them as an anti-poverty measure because the average income of a rent stabilized tenant is $40,000 a year. Some saw them as like a power building measure because rent control gives you the right to renew your lease and the right to fight for your housing, right? So that was the coalition that was fighting for um, rent stabilization. And that was a coalition that I think we were really used to. Cancel rent is different, right? Cancel rent is a big, non-means-tested universal program that says housing is a human right. So there was a lot of... um 
In addition to backlash from the real estate industry, there is backlash from liberals and moderates in Albany, Democrats who are like, wait a second, like why, why are we helping those, those people? And so there is a, a resistance um, to universal programs that benefit everyone in the democratic political establishment. And I think it's short-sighted um, because in our efforts to make sure that the aid is going to the most needy, which is surely a laudable, a laudable goal, um, we make the program so narrow, we make it so hard to access that um, people can't access it. So those very people that it's sort of perverse, but those very people that you're trying to help can't get help. I mean, you look at these statistics and, it, and they're not even completely accurate uh, to this day of how many people haven't been able to pay their rent in the last six months in New York City. And it's jarring, um, including small businesses, by the way. So I just don't understand how they can run away from this at this point because the crisis is impending. You can kick, you know, kick the can down and everybody likes to you know, talk about this. But if you're two years without paying your rent, how many New Yorkers are going to be able to afford $75,000, $80,000 up uh, of rent? I mean, that's uh, even public housing. It's, it, it, if you have a two bedroom apartment in public housing, it's still, you know, most likely over $1,500 a month. Yeah. And if you haven't been working or if you have been working and you're, you know, we understand what the COVID economy has, has cost us um, as New Yorkers, but I, I just don't understand how even the more centrist liberals who are unwilling to, you know, go with the slogan of cancel rent don't understand the concept of cancel rent. Right, right, right. You know, um, I think it's really interesting. I'm glad you bring up public housing. Um, what Democrats are saying, and you know, what the Albany establishment is saying, is that they actually dealt with the problem. They passed something called the Emergency Rental Assistance Program. It's a $2.7 billion pool of money that is designed to pay back rent for people who are eligible. So people who make um, 80% of the area median income or below. The problem with ERAP is that the program is incredibly difficult to get access to. Um, it takes on average two hours to apply. There's no save and resume button. So you have to sit down and do it. You have to upload all your documents. You have to include photo IDs for everyone who lives in your household, including children. Um, and the website is con constantly crashing. Um, and sort of this sort of scenario, this sort of like, program that we can't access. I mean, like this was supposed to be the pragmatic alternative to cancel rent, right? That we are going to create a pretty standard voucher-based rental assistance program that's paying the back rent um, that's accumulated over COVID-19. It's not working, right? So it's crazy that like the simple solution, cancel rent, where landlords are just going to apply for the aid directly and go get it, would have probably been a hell of a lot easier, at least that's what I think, um, than what they did instead, which is a sort of Byzantine bureaucratic nightmare. Um, you can't even get to the website. So, so it's sad, um, but public housing, I think is a little, yeah, and I think you're absolutely right. You know, it's not just that the back rent, it's not just the back rent that's accumulated. The back rent is of course accumulated, but it's also that um, people aren't working moving forward either. So even if your job comes back tomorrow, how are you going to get the 75K to pay what is what came before and then pay the rent moving forward, right? Like um, we're in a more permanent recession and we need to we need permanent housing programs that um, can really grapple with with the recession that we're in right now. Um, 
public housing, you know, in public housing, people pay 30% of their income in rent, no matter what. And um, the government is supposed to fund the difference between that and the operating. The problem with public housing is that, you know, it's been divested in for so, 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 so many years. So when the rents go down, which they have done because of COVID-19, rent collection has gone down dramatically. There's been no increase in funding from the federal government to make up for that loss in rent and make up for the 40 years of backlog and capital repairs that the agency desperately needs. And so, you know, money, housing is not free. Um, money has to come from somewhere and it has to come from the federal government. Um, I'm, I'm like really struggling with understanding why big real estate is fighting this so hard. Um, we talked about Christopher's today about uh, who's the author of Rentier Capitalism and, and talked about the monopolies and the monopolies taking advantage of the smaller landlords. But um, I mean, is it, is it just about sort of this, this sort of disaster capitalism approach to, to the economy? I mean, what they need renters. <laughs> and if, if people are evicted, like who's going to rent? And also just adding to that for folks who don't live in New York, the, the amount of effort, even with the new um, reforms that have, have been passed uh, and then reversed in some cases, um, it's really hard to qualify for rent. If you have a red mark on your, your record, you know, good luck getting a lease after this economy. So, like, what is their forward? Who who are going to be the renters if everyone's a victim? Very good question. Um, I think it's about power, right? I think, like everything, it's about power. It's about a sort of like deep ideological commitment to property rights. Um, and even when it's not in their economic best interest, what they want to do is pursue eviction because they, you know, it's like your property right is like inalienable, inalienable. I don't know how to say it. I, you know what I mean? People, they don't want it to be taken away from them. And so there's just like, um, it's a real power. It's, it's about exerting power over the tenant. It's my property. You don't get to stay there. It's not your house. It's my building. Um, and even though that's against their economic self-interest, that is what they want to do. Um, and we see it time and time again. So, um, all right. We 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 do have this little crisis happening in New York right now about, you know, who is the next governor going to be um, if Cuomo steps down, which is likely to happen. Uh, and our, you know, Kathy Hochul um, from Western New York will likely become uh, at least the interim governor until the next election. OK, with all that being said, the dynamics in Albany are always very, very, very important for these kinds of conversations. Do you see just given the potential, I mean, even the weakness of Governor Cuomo, like for, forget about whether or not he's out of office or not. Do you see this as an opportunity? Like, is there a wedge moment to come in and say, um, you know, you've created this, this monster, especially in light of, of the national conversation about the eviction moratorium that um, Cory Bush has, has been praised for really fighting uh, to extend. I mean, is there like sort of a moment where we can, you know, come back and, and flip this around? I mean, I hope so. I, I always believe that there's a moment, um, especially when people are organizing to the, the, degree, the degree that renters are organizing. Um, it's important when we think about Andrew Cuomo to think about um, who hasn't called for his resignation. And that is, of course, Revney. They're one of the only major political players that hasn't. Um, and what is Revney? 
Redney, Real, Estate uh, Real Estate Board of New York. Yeah. So real estate is sticking with the governor. Um, and so I think both this moment that we're in right now with the eviction moratorium about to expire, but also the next six to eight months where there will be a, govern- a gubernatorial election no matter what, whether he's impeached, whether he steps down, whether he decides to run for re-election, there is an election happening. Um, and the election is going to be about Cuomo's legacy. And it's going to be about whether or not it's going to be candidates distancing themselves from uh, Cuomo's legacy. Um, so his legacy is very simple and straightforward to me. It is gentrification. It's giving away massive corporate tax breaks to developers like of Hudson Yards, of um, of I'm Buffalo Billions, these like big corrupt real estate projects where um, Governor Cuomo is just handing the keys to develop the state to his real estate donors. That His legacy is that 92,000 New Yorkers are homeless, a number that's gone up by 50% since he took office, right? So this is who he is. Um, and of course, he's also, you know, all the sexual harassment, all of that too. Um, and so what we are going to be saying to candidates and to both, you know, the remaining leadership in Albany, Andre Stewart Cousins and Carl Hastie, who now have a tremendous amount of power. The assembly leader and the state, uh, the Senate uh, majority leader. Yeah. The assembly leader and the um, state Senate leader. We're going to be saying, you know, do you want to continue Cuomo's legacy of failed housing policies or do you want to do something different? Um, and you know, we've had, we've been successful in that in the past. That's how we've been able to get anything done in Albany. Um, so if anything, the strategy is almost more possible right now. Um, <laughs> I'd be reluctant to say they're, they're also like the, 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 because New York City is, there's the appearance of progressivism, um, at least in city council, but there's a sort of game that happens as we know really well with progressives or people who want to appear progressive or have coalitions of progressives because of, you know, living in New York city. Um, there are a lot of folks who've come out and said like, okay, I'm no longer taking real estate money and they have in the past, uh, or they voted with real estate or both, or they say they've no longer taken real estate and they're still taking it. So why is that important? And like, I mean, to me, it's just, this was so infuriating during the mayoral race. I like almost lost my mind, but I mean, this is so common. Um, and, and and it, I feel like it's become even more common after 2016 because New Yorkers are, are see where the tides are going and how things are shifting. Um, but do you think it's going to be as common now with Eric Adams, at least trying to message that, uh, you know, New York is not as progressive as maybe the world thinks, whether or not you and I agree with that? Yeah. I mean, look, Eric Adams is not trying to be a progressive and he's not trying to challenge real estate. Um, that's pretty clear. Um, I don't know. I think the fact that people change their mind about taking real estate money or that people are willing to say that they're not doing it, but really they are doing it. All of that is just us being victims of our own success. I don't really know two ways around that. Honestly, like people are going to lie. Politicians are going to bifurcate. That's what they do. Politicians are going to obfuscate. That's what they do. Like that's just like a reality of the field and the work that we're in as organizers and activists. Our role is to, and advocates, our role is to like call that out when we see it, build enough power so that it's harder and harder to be fake. Um, 
but I really see the fact that like, it used to be just like a fringe demand. Like that's freaking crazy. You can't run for governor with no, without real estate money. You can't run for state senate without real estate money. It became like a necessary thing. So all of that, you know, it, it drives me crazy too. And it's like infuriating. And it's like, yes, you are taking real estate money. Like stop lying. But you know, we're victims of our own success. Um, and the only solution is to like keep our eyes on the prize, keep organizing, keep building power, keep calling out the bullshit when you see the bullshit. Um, keep, you know, running real people, you know, homegrown, like progressive grassroots leaders for office um, and keep changing the tide. So it annoys me, but I don't know if there's anything that we can do about it. <laughs> All right. Um, what are your immediate demands? your personal media demands? Well, the immediate thing that we need right now is to extend the eviction moratorium. Um, we're calling for the eviction moratorium to be extended until June of 2022. The federal moratorium has been extended, but it's just not as strong as the one that we have in New York. We want to keep our New York moratorium intact. Um, in part, um, because no rental assistance money has gotten out the door. So that's like our second demand is we, we need to get that money in the hands of the people who need it. Um, and then we need more of it. Um, beyond that, we want permanent um, permanent eviction protection. So we need to pass um, the good cause eviction bill at the state level, as well as permanent rental assistance for people who have lost their jobs and their income sort of. I feel like I just said the word permanent a hundred times, but permanently because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, so we actually need, like, we know that the way to survive crises like these are to like double down on safety net programs, not to like make them more and more temporary. So that's what we're demanding. Uh, if folks want to help out in New York, um, what can they do? Well, we've got a lot of upcoming events. Um, so on August 10th, we are going to be having a rally in downtown Manhattan at 250 Broadway. Um, and we're doing the same thing on August 11th and then on August 19th. So we've got like three upcoming rallies. You can call your state legislature and demand that they go back into session, not just to impeach the governor, but also to extend the eviction moratorium. Um, and we're having like a party and a celebration and um a sort of like honoring of our work too um, as Housing Justice for All on September 9th. So that's going to be somewhere in New York City. I don't have a location yet, um, but our upcoming events and you can check them all out on our um, social media, Twitter, Housing for All NY, Facebook, um, or you can sign up for our mailing list. Go check it out. See Weaver, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you for yeah, having me. Love the amazing work. Hope to see you yeah, again soon. Talk to you soon. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. I am very excited. Our first time, oh my gosh, I'm so excited to have Janelle Jolly on for the first time on the Nomi Key Show. She's the host of What's Left to Do, an East Coaster in exile living in California. This is perfect because I've once lived in California and I live in New York. There we go. It's just places. Um, so the, con the, the, the conversation today is perfect because both of us uh, understand, you know, New York politics for the most part and uh, California politics. So, all right. Governor Cuomo. Oh, dear. Who I have been personally uh, reporting on and, and invested in challenging for probably a decade at this point. Um, any second now, by the time the show airs, he could potentially have stepped down. We don't know for sure. Ah, uh, OK, so here we go. Let's do it. 
Go for it. By rights, he would have to be, uh, what was, what was, what was you guys, AG, who had to step down, uh, the sheriff of Wall Street? By rights, he would have to be like, Elliot Spitzer. Disposed with Spitzer. Yes, thank you. I was going to say Schneiderman, but I knew that wasn't right. Um, by rights, he should oh, that be. that one Spitzer. too, by the way. That was yeah. also another yeah, right, was governor, year. but Spitzer was also AG. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, like, the, there's no, so many guys. Come yeah, on. that's right. New York just keeps the hits coming. Um, by rights, he'd be disposed of that quickly, but y'all got a thug on your hands and he is not, he's not going quietly. He's not going gently. And, and if we're being honest, I think it's a coin flip as to whether or not he won't serve out the rest of his term at all. Um, I think that, you know, I can't, you can't even say a normal politician because what does that mean? Um, but he's so thoroughly uh, consolidated power in New York that I think the, the time that he's been given right now between like the, 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 the AG's report, James's report coming out and potentially uh, when the, the, the house would have to um, start their process for impeachment, should he just not resign? That gives him way too much time to do what he does. Um, and he's, he's got enough, he's got enough juice to call in threats. Just like uh, when you guys tried to try to, uh, get Sheldon Silver a couple of years ago. Like he eventually went down, but it wasn't a given and it wasn't swift and it wasn't right away. So I, I, I personally think that he, he, he might be able to, to maneuver kind of like, uh, your boy down in Virginia who got caught in the blackface scheme, but, and everyone was calling for his res- resignation. He's still the governor. Um, so I wouldn't, I don't or think like the president. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> right that guy too. <laughs> that's right. Um, a, little bit, a little bit more relatable. Yeah, that's right. How, you, you bring up a really great point because I think folks, um, and some of it is intentional to, to keep forces putting pressure and some of it is just, you know, frankly, naivete. Um, power, when you are, when you have, when you control power, when you control a budget, when you control, when you, uh, when people are dependent on you for their jobs. So an instance of, of Biden, mm-hmm. you know, he's partly untouchable because He was the front runner and folks knew if they could get him and and beat Trump, then listen, just ignore, just power through it. With Governor Cuomo, he has used the power of the purse, the the budget um, to prolong this this crisis. But he simultaneously he's made so many enemies in the state legislature. And frankly, in my opinion, this we wouldn't even be at this point if the IDC hadn't been beaten um, by you know, a coalition of forces, leftist forces, but full credit to the Senate Majority Leader and the Deputy Leader, uh, Stuart Cousins and, and Janaris for really orchestrating and organizing um, much of that behind the scenes. And so I say that because what's happened now is Andrew Cuomo, as of last night, his own chair of the Democratic Party, which is his party. When I say it's his party, no one's in that party that is not Andrew Cuomo's choice. That's right. He, they called for him to resign. So I think it's really important. And so it, what you just said about that time frame is like when you're shoved up against a corner. Yeah. Okay. So say, say you're like on a battlefield and sure. you're thinking, oh my God, the forces are coming at me. Where do I go? And there's this little like side field that you could potentially get to. If you could just like rush past like maybe four troops, yeah, but sure. <laughs> those troops are really naive right. and young, but right. you're like a master general. You're like, I could get back to those four troops and just exit through the corner. Sure. That's how I see Andrew Cuomo right now. I, I don't, um, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not discounting your analysis of like where he is right now. I just think that I think a couple of things. Um, I think 
A, it wasn't, this is not the strongest position for the Democrats in New York to be in, to be leading this inquiry inquiry with sexual harassment when you could be going after, you know, the uh, the nursing home deaths, when you could be going after the Tappan Zee Bridge, when you could be going after the one of, you know, many real estate, you know, corruption, grift things that inside his insiders have gone to jail for and that you could, if you could, if you still wanted to stay and like pull on those strings, it would most, it would almost certainly lead back to him. Um, so that's, that's one. Um, and to that point, I think that, uh, he's, he's, he's kind of, um, like noted the shifts in the political winds with regard to allegations, um, of sexual harassment such that, you know, Trump was up, was able to like, you know, breeze past them when he was president, uh, our current president was able to kind of get that buried and breeze past. And his, uh, I thought it was, I thought it was really a provocative move that his, uh, his lawyer earlier this week, you know, released, released the report with just like Alphonse David. Pages, huh? Alphonse David or. This is a different piece of this is a different piece of information that came out. His former lawyer, uh, who's now the head of the HRC, um, yeah, um, has been staffers are asking him to step down because of his involvement. Oh, in oh, oh no, tobacco. Her Sorry. name is Glavin. It starts with a G. Okay. But she, you know, kind of came out with this retort to the um, to the uh, to the AG's report. And it was kind of shady because there's just like pages of different Democratic leaders, you know, doing what he's accused of to just to, to, to say, like, you know, of course, what he did, you know, is being blown up for political purposes. You know, look at this picture of Barack Obama with uh, what is the Southeast Asian country? I think the she was uh, like a political prisoner in Myanmar and she's like, you know, trying to get away from him and he's going in for a kiss. So I don't I don't I don't think it's a given that he's. He's cornered, but I don't think that he's done for. Um, and perhaps maybe he um, he's like he kind of uses his resignation as a bargaining chip um, to avoid uh, conviction. But I also think he might he might gamble and take the chance at an impeachment because he's still got enough chips there to call in because because he because he you know he's in charge of so many sinecures you know there I'm I'm sure in the same respect. Or similar, similarly to what was what the dynamics were at play with uh, Sheldon, I'm sure you know there 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 are threats that can be called in to like pull people's jobs, you know, fa- family members, uh, of friends that can create some pressure and maybe um, uh, quietly move some votes to a yes to maybe a no. I because he's he's nasty and he's he's and he's mm-hmm. so egotistical. The, like this this is his reason for living. I don't. I don't think that it's a given that he that he leaves, though, though um, right now there seems to be, you know, just about everyone uh, in New York state politics in the Democratic Party that is coming out against him. I think it's going to be a little bit more fluid uh, dynamic than what it may seem. I, I hear you, but I think that Joe Biden wouldn't have stepped up and, and said, I mean, I've always said on the show that when Biden says you need to step down, then then, you know, it's the end or when Hillary who is not said to step down and not yet, I, but they might pull that out. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, partly because um, he doesn't have the votes in the Senate for sure. Uh, he might be able to maneuver the votes in the assembly, but I don't really know at this point if he has those, those cards because the budget process is over sure. for this year. Sure. And so 
Um, but I, I do want to, I want to play this clip because you mentioned how he came out with this rebuttal and, uh, a few days ago, it seems like a lifetime ago, but a few days ago, uh, Andrew Cuomo released this montage. It was (laughs) so cringe. For those of you who are listening on podcast, I apologize, but if you're listening on podcast, do me a favor and just try to find this video on our, on our YouTube channel so you can watch it. Uh, but we'll, we'll play it either way. So let's, let's play this, this montage, uh, defense. My God, man. Cringe. I've been making the same gesture in public all my life. I actually learned it from my mother (laughs) and from my father. It is meant to convey warmth, nothing more. Indeed, there are hundreds, if not thousands of photos of me using the exact same gesture. I do it with everyone. Black and white, young and old, straight and LGBTQ, powerful people, friends, (laughs) strangers, people who I meet on the street. Okay, I just have to laugh. The, the moments of laughter specifically were around him doing um, Eskimo kisses with Bill Clinton, <laughs> kissing the cheek of Al Gore. Uh, I mean, here's the thing. You know what I didn't see in that? I didn't see his hand going up a state trooper's dress. That's right. I, did I didn't see him see cupping him. a breast. <laughs> exactly. And it's also no like, breast. It, that's not the point, Andrew. Like, okay, fine, you do this with everyone. A, that doesn't mean that everyone likes for you to do it. And number two, what you were showing was not what was alleged by, what is it at this point? Like 12 different women? Like, come on, don't be gross. It's, it's, and and also, I think he's also trying to keep it on this story rather than the U.S. attorney investigating him for the, 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 the the situation that happened in nursing homes where hundreds of where they covered up the, the number of nursing home deaths, uh, the book sales, the fact that he was using state employees being investigated right right now. Um, you know, you, you mentioned what had happened with his previous real estate dealings and, and some of in, in, just a few years ago, folks don't even realize this. This is like pre Cuomo sexual situation. <laughs> uh, Andrew Cuomo's circle of trust, you know, Joe Prococo, who he called his third or second brother, yep. um, was a family member. He's in prison right now. That's right. Uh, his circle of trust is in jail serving on corruption cha- uh, charges. That's right. He shut down a commission when he ran for office. He mm-hmm. ran on an anti-corruption campaign because of the situations. It's crazy. But yeah. because of things like Shelly Silver, yep. who had to step down, the assembly leader and the longtime Senate leader um, in New York had to step down. Alan Hevesy, who is the controller, had to step down and they all went to jail. That's so right. He set up this commission to investigate public corruption <laughs> Guess what? As soon as it started looking into his office, he shut it down. That's right. So this is New York. Um, I'm so glad you brought that up, Janelle, though. Can I ask a question? Why is there is is has no one in New York politics? Because I'm a little bit removed, right? But I do keep my ear to the ground. Has no one in in state politics in New York at all countenance like a tighter term limit for the governor? Because the fact that absent this uh, investigation and this, you know, bombshell by your AG that uh, he could be running again for his fourth term seems a little bit absurd to me. Like, why, why don't we, why don't we tighten that since, you know, New York just, you know, <laughs> seems to be prone uh, to, to, to so much corruption with like ensconced, you know, uh, political 
political leaders who just can serve for forever? Yeah, I think these are these are real questions. Um, there's a lot of democracy debates over this. I mean, California mm. put term limits in, and then folks just rotated to other positions. Sure. Um, I mean, it's it. I think there's a there are deeper conversations about what happens in terms of of the power dynamics, like who mm-hmm. are the organizations that and the parties, and how are they able to facilitate those powers. I mean, before Andrew Cuomo, uh, you had what was it four governors in like three years or something mm-hmm. um i mean it's sure. still it's still a machine i think the question sure. is how do we keep the interests at bay That's um, right. from my perspective sure, so sure, sure. real estate for instance is kind of the topic of the show this week and um real estate you know has has not abandoned andrew cuomo right now because no, they because know very the well He's the one who's keeping them afloat in the state. There was, yeah. was it, you guys got the, the 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 LED factory that's sitting empty. Um, you almost had, you know, a retract, you know, this boondoggle of a new stadium in Syracuse. Um, God knows everything that's going on in in the city for real estate people. So yeah, he's the one keeping them fed. So no, they're not going to abandon their man like ever um, <laughs> because no, what you know, I, I I wouldn't bite the hand that feeds me. So. I'm really curious to see what Kathy Hochul kind of meetings uh, she's having right now with real estate. Mm, she's mm-hmm. she's one of the more conservative congressional members out of Western New York. Um, I grew up in her district, strangely enough, and so I'm very familiar with her. Um, but it's it's she's she's uh, it'll be an int- she might be more. Will things shift? Probably not. But mm-hmm. um, is she more vulnerable to defeat? Possibly. Who knows? Uh, okay. So. I, I want to relate this to what's happening in California, which you're really familiar with. Uh, There's this recall effort against Gavin Newsom, who is charming, who ran uh, for governor and said he was supporting uh, Medicare for all. He was supported by the National Nurses Union, which is a very progressive union. Um, So what is this recall situation right now? Okay. I'm going to try and do this without having a stroke because it's, it's so, it's so absurd. Okay. So just, if we take a step back um, from, from my view uh, right now, what's going on in California, just recall a Palooza. Um, that is the well-organized and um, focused uh, the result of a well-organized focused conservative movement who is taking, um, you know, the pandemic, the shock of the pandemic to to try and instantiate um, all of these political challenges from the local level on up to Gavin Newsom. Um, I just interviewed this week Chesa Boudin, who is the DA for San Francisco. Um, and I believe he said the number is that right now, and he's under a recall um, pressure, uh, but they're not. I really? Chesa says. Oh, we're going to get to that. It's 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 a, it, the word is absurd. I just, I won't be able to, I can't find another word for that, but he was saying, I think at this moment, there are over 60, I believe he said the number of 66, uh, various recall efforts, um, uh, you know, throughout the state from local on up to Gavin. So, you know, uh, conservatives are using this moment of, uh, the shock of the pandemic to, you know, kind of astroturf the, the anger, the, the desperation, the, the fear, of people, you know, against democratically elected officials. So that's that's the context. Um, regarding Gavin specifically, we'll we'll start at the top now and work our way down. It, it's clear again that this is the only recalls are the only way that Republicans win, can win statewide office uh, in California because you know California is basically a one party state. Now, 
from my view on the ground, I live in the Bay Area. Um, Gavin, it's a coin flip at this point as to whether Gavin will beat this recall effort, which should be, he should be able to run away with it. And the reason that it's a coin flip at this point is that home, the, the election is in, the, the election is September 14th, which is like an off-brand time <laughs> to be having an election. You know, people typically aren't paying attention to, to elections, you know, not in November, definitely not in off year. So there's that compounding factor. But then also on top of this, like homeboy isn't campaigning. I haven't, I haven't heard, um, I haven't heard, I haven't gotten one phone call. I haven't had my door knocked on. I haven't gotten one mailer. I get some of his ashy ass little emails. Um, but, but he's not campaigning and, and no one like Democrats, you know, across the spectrum that, you know, I've, that I'm in contact with, they aren't, they aren't thinking about this. So, you know, and ballots are, are going to be hitting mailboxes um, in a couple of weeks, like mid August. And, you know, they might look like, you know, spam or, or, or I don't know, something unimportant. So, you know, they're, they're going to be headed to the trash can because what is this thing? Surely I'm not getting a ballot for an actual election in August. So it's just a mess. And, and if he loses his recall, which he very well might, it won't be, um, it won't be, you know, largely due to policy or politics. It will be due to sheer incompetence. His, for example, uh, the people who are running, running his recall campaign are like the same people that Kamala used for her campaign, which, you know, we'll just leave that there. But like, they weren't even like, you have a, you have one job as campaign staff like and they couldn't even get him they they mess up the paperwork or missed the deadline something and he's not even on the on the ballot listed as a democrat and it's just like what are you being paid for it's just it's just it's just a a comedy of errors so gavin very well might lose this recall um because he's not campaigning and i, I think it's just i don't know if it's hubris or or what that um that doesn't have him out here like making the case for himself to at least, and, and, and this is from a leftist who there's, there's no, I have zero love for Gavin Newsom, but I do not support the recall effort because this is just a naked power grab um, uh, from Republicans, but at least come out there just, you know, and, 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 and use your bully pulpit to like get people to, to, to stick with you just for the sake of democracy. Like, you know, if you really don't like him and you really want him gone, you know, next year is an election year and you can, you can challenge me. You can challenge my, um, my, my seat for the governor next year, 2022, when I'm up for re-election, but, um, to try and steal this, um, in, in an off year and in this way is, um, you know, you could paint that, you could easily paint that as anti-democratic. Um, but again, I don't, I don't know where homeboy is. I don't know if he thinks that, you know, working people who are trying to put their lives back together after, you know, the calamitous year that 2020 was for so many people. Um, I don't know if he just figures that everyone is like, you know, buried in newspapers every day and definitely knows that this is happening and when it's happening or what, but it's been, it's been shocking to see that we are, we're basically a month out and in the Bay area anyway, like nothing. Um, so <laughs> So we'll see, but he's, he's so, very so, likely. 
I think one, one question I have um, just before we wrap is what's so interesting to me about this is Republicans are using this as an organizing opportunity to rebuild the Republican Party. Yep. So they're putting the money into organizing on the ground. And, mm-hmm. you know, Gavin Newsom, uh, it seems like a very strategic move, whether it works or doesn't, is a huge gamble. Mm-hmm. Just ignore, maybe not to inflame it, not to ignite people, not to get national press, especially since they're they're pushing uh, a celebrity, <laughs> Chris, sure. uh, 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 Jenner. Uh, what's his name? Yeah. Uh, what's your name? Uh, Chris or, or I, um, I tried. um um because there's so many of them. I can't keep yeah. up with yeah, all yeah, yeah. Caitlin, thank you, Caitlin, Caitlin Jenner. Jenner. Chris there's is, like a there's a YouTube um yeah YouTube <laughs> real estate influencer who's like kind of high in the polls, and there's this you know conservative like radio. Yeah guy who's high in the polls and it's and and, and i mean the the I, what i have some arguments that i've heard from um you know fellow leftists is that you know you know we don't fuck with gavin do we care you know that and it's just like no we don't fuck with gavin. like absolutely not but because uh the similar to new york um the governor in california sets the budget you know and even though this person maybe would only be in office for a year because next year is the election year a lot of damage can be done in a year um in a state this big with this much money on the line so you know stick with the devil you know um and also maybe use this opportunity to pressure him to to pressure him for support um for AB 1400 uh which uh assembly member Ash Kalra who I also interviewed um wrote and he'll be representing that um when when um when they're back in session in Sacramento in January so it's like we can we can he's depending on our support and <laughs> depending on us like campaign for him which really makes me angry so it's like use this use this time to pressure him for Medicare for all, our, our version of Medicare for all, um, in, in California, use this to pressure him to support, uh, the social housing, um, bills, uh, that, um, assembly member Alex Lee, who I just interviewed, and that'll also be coming out the day next week with Chess's, um, Chess's interview, like use this moment to pressure him to, to make good on his, you know, faux progressive, you know, ideals, if he wants our support to make it through this, this nonsense um recall effort but but i just i am i am flabbergasted at the at the level of unseriousness that i see his campaign approaching this recall effort with because because the, th- the the thing that makes it like frightening is that if if enough people vote yes on the first question meaning like yes he should be recalled the the person that gets just a mere plurality of votes and there are I think there are over 20 people running for a governor to replace him. Someone could win with like 20% of the vote. And that is that, and that's in a race that's going to have miserably low turnout. So that, that to me is just reeks of, you know, being anti-democratic. But he, from my view, doesn't seem to be taking this seriously at all. And it's absurd. He's been he's been damaged by how he responded during the pandemic, you know, showing up at elitist dinners That's and right. fundraisers. And so right. even if someone doesn't vote for a Caitlyn Jenner or a right wing radio show host, they yeah. could put their vote somewhere else and decrease his vote so right. that the others are exactly. empowered. Exactly. Um, Janelle, so mm-hmm. interesting. We'd love to have you back on. Let's have sure, more sure, conversations sure. about this. Uh, yeah. You know, really we have to pay attention to state level, even if, like you said, right. even if we're not allies with 
uh, folks like this. I mean, the Republicans are really waging war in California because they right. see an opportunity to keep right. part of California left and also win some house seats back. Well, and that, and fuck up school boards like this. The yep. San Francisco yep. school that's board it. is under recall because they want because this that's the last major um, uh, local that's school right. board. That's not a charter school district. Uh, they're trying to jam my man up, uh, Chesa, uh, at the DA because he's taking, um, you know, yeah. he's threatening the profits of billionaires uh, that are, you know, exploiting 1099 workers that they're astroturf they're astroturfing right. the fear that people have during the pandemic because actually they're upset about you know having their pre- profits threatened so they're they're organized and they're and they're focused the good news is that we should we have a level of organization and messaging such that many of these efforts won't be successful i think or hope i'm knocking on wood um but uh but they're they're vicious and they're using um the they took over the elections for a ciu 1099 uh, right. largest in the country in california right. and are on a right-wing guy that's <laughs> right over that's right they manipulated uh the members yeah right. anyways janelle thank you super thank fascinating you. conversation yeah, let's absolutely. do this again very soon yes stay well be well that's be right. safe Yes, you stay um, safe too. And I can't wait to meet you. you when I'm in New York uh, to get you Absolutely. on uh, the show. I think it'll be great, but to. this is such a pleasure. Thank you uh, for having me on. Thank you. Go check out uh, Janelle Jolly. She has a podcast out. It is called What's Left to Do. I love that. It's like the perfect title. My God. Yes, it was. I, I was very, I was very happy when my friends helped me come up with a name. So, Brilliant. uh Really great. But uh, what's left to do.com. And there are wonderful stories uh, from people from all across the left. Um, And I think you'll dig it. I'm a really good interviewer. (laughs) Uh, She's a great guest. So, Janelle, thank you. Thank you. everybody you know i love cbd i specifically love sunset lake cbd because sunset lake cbd is a farmer owned company that shifts craft cbd products directly from their farm in vermont to your door uh, sunset lake cbd has all types of products they have tinctures they have creams they have gummies and fudge and salves and of course their hemp uh, which they grow on a farm that they flipped from being a Ben and Jerry's farm in Vermont to being a premium hemp farm. And it really shows. Uh, What they are doing is they are enhancing rural economies in Vermont. They are paying a minimum wage of $15 an hour and the majority uh, of their company is owned by their employees. On top of all that, they support shows like ours, the Majority Report and the David Pakman Show, which is a pretty big deal because it's, you know, we're, we're, we're building our, we're building our show. And so it's, it's hard to get those big brands. And it's really lovely that uh, you have progressives who own companies um, that are doing it in an ethical way, supporting other uh, progressive media out there, which is independent media in particular. Uh, They also have dog biscuits out right now that you too can eat if you want to eat them with your dogs (laughs) or your dogs, or maybe your cat. I don't know if cats like peanut butter or not, Uh, but you can go check that out. And you also can get 20% off of your order. If you go to sunsetlakecbd.com and you type in the user code NOMI, N-O-M-I, 20% off of your entire order. If you go to sunsetlakecbd.com, I can tell you, I talk about this all the time because I'm an old woman. I have sciatica. Last night in the middle of the night, I woke up with such pain in my hip because I've not been doing my yoga. And I took some tincture, I put it in my water and it immediately immediately calm me down. Um, and I could go back to sleep. It makes a huge difference. It really does help me with my aches and my pains. And I know it helps out other folks. My family members use their products. My friends use their products. I use their products. Sunsetlakecbd.com. 
It's the real deal. I wouldn't say otherwise. Guys, we're doing something a little special today on Friday. Um, this is a special segment because, as many of you know, we have a book club, and our book club, uh, we've been sending out books for the last several months, uh, and we have been able to uh, do interviews with several of our book club authors when they're available. And this one in particular is very timely, especially with the show today where we have Zia Weaver on. We did an interview for the book club with uh, the author of Rentier Capitalism, Who Owns the Economy and Who Pays for It. Uh, This interview is with Brett Christophers. It is an audio version available exclusively early to our book club members at the Nomi Key Show book club. But we wanted to feature part of it on the show today to give you guys a taste of what we offer. Of course, if you are a book club member, you also receive the book um, and there's different programs available. So go to patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show. You can receive one book, two books, or four books a month. And of course, if you have any questions about that, please email us at the Nomi Key Show at gmail.com. Meantime, I'm just gonna do an extra plug. If you're not already a patron, this is the time to do so. Join us at patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show. We have other swag available too. So if you become a patron, you might be able to get a mug or a bag or some stickers or all of those things. Um, and we're going to be doing some uh, other fun stuff coming soon. So you definitely want to go check us out there at patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show. And here is our interview with Brett Christophers. Hello, Nomi Key Show Book Club members. We are very excited to have this extremely timely, valuable conversation about rent. Oh, yes. I'd I'd say the majority of our listeners are renters, including myself. And it has been a constant uh, frustration, stress. And of course, it has been the topic of this week with uh, Corey Bush and other members of the Progressive Caucus and the squad who have staged a, a, I mean, an occupation basically on the Capitol steps to urge the Democratic president to extend the rent moratorium as we are about to undergo potentially more lockdowns. Crazy. Uh, We are very honored to have Brett Christophers here. He is the author of Rentier Capitalism, Who Owns the Economy and Who Pays for It? Uh, He is also an economic geographer at the Uppsala University in Sweden. And previously, uh, he authored the book, The New Enclosure, which won the Isaac and Tamara Deutscher Memorial Prize. But uh, uh, for for our, our book club listeners, you've most likely either Receive the book or read the book, hopefully. Uh, but this is sort of a, a, a special uh, addition to our book club is having conversations with with the authors of our book club choices. So, Brett, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Uh, you know, when you, when you began writing this book, did you have a sense of how bad it would get for renters worldwide, um, especially in in uh, you know, the Western world, I would say, um, how bad it would get so quickly? Um, I, I guess so. I mean, I, probably the, the, the most useful place to start would be to kind of step back really briefly to talk a little bit about the book that came before, which was The New Enclosure. So, so that book was about um, the privatization of land, including but not only land for housing. Um, in the in the UK context specifically over the last 30 or 40 years. And, and, and one of the arguments of the book was that um, instead of um, um, turning the UK into kind of a nation of homeowners in the way that was argued by, by 
like that, Margaret Thatcher at the beginning of that program of privatization. What ultimately happened for a series of different reasons is that um, land, and in particular housing land that was previously owned by the state, by municipalities and so on in the UK, has ultimately in large part handed up, ended up, sorry, in the private rental sector. Um, and so um, what you've, what you've um, had there is the growth of this kind of um, small landlord class, but also professional landlords who are able to extract increasing amounts of housing rent from renters across the UK. And that's been allied for a series of different reasons to massive growth in house prices and growing unaffordability and hence a growing renting population. So the first part of the answer is, 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 is yes, because of that background work. But I guess the, the second thing I want to say is that the new book, the Rentier Capitalism book, kind of grew out of that first book. And what I mean by that was what I noticed was that what we were seeing specifically in the context of property and housing, this divergence between an asset owning class on the one hand and a renting class on the other that pays rent to the former, that actually the, the economy more broadly within the UK, but not only within the UK, kind of replicates that model. So across a whole series of other sectors, um, including things like intellectual property, natural resources, uh, minerals and oil and gas, um, uh, infrastructure of various types, across all these different sectors, you kind of had the same model where you have, on the one hand, a constituency that a private constituency of both companies and households, but in particular companies that own those assets, those valuable scarce assets. And on the other hand, you have the rest of society paying rent in one form or another, even if it's not always called rent, to those asset owners. And so that was kind of the genesis of the book was was this kind of realization that that the housing model. It's kind of replicated throughout the economy in all those these different other sectors. I think I think most um, people uh, who live in major cities in in you know the westernized world today would say rent is 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 not keeping at pace with uh, pay, and they're especially uh, as we're in the midst of COVID and potentially you know other Delta variant lockdowns. Who knows what's going to happen? Um, it's not sustainable. And, uh, you know, this came to fold this week in, in, in the U.S. where it just it, it didn't make sense politically. Um, it doesn't seem to make sense that you don't extend a rent moratorium. And simultaneously, a lot of these these um, whether it's big, it depends on what city you're in, but whether they're landlords or uh, big developers, you know, they have all been. Uh, given their own moratoriums or erase any of their uh, mortgages that they've had to pay. I mean, they've they've been prioritized over the renters, but at the same time, people haven't been, you know, they've lost their jobs and wages are extraordinarily low. So how is it sustainable for the landlord? I mean, I mean, basic economics would say, uh, <laughs> it's not going to work. Um, I think, I mean, the, the only reason it's sustainable for the landlord, I think, um, is that is that landlords across the board, both if you're thinking in terms of kind of the big professional landlords, but also you know the the kind of um, classic mom and pop investor landlord, um, 
you know, to the extent that they have been borrowing in order to acquire property that is then that is then uh, uh, rented out, you know, for the past six, seven, eight years, they've been able to borrow rock bottom interest rates, right? They're, you know, in the country where I'm in, 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 the, in Sweden, interest rates for property are around, I don't know, one and a half percent at the moment. And so, you know, it's not free, but it's almost free money. So I think while interest rates remain very low, the, the business model broadly continues to work for landlords. You know, even even if the the people who are ultimately paying those rents are coming under are coming under increasing pressure. So I think a lot of it is to do with interest rates, and of course, you know, interest rates are significant for other reasons, which is that um, you know, interest rates being so low is what ena- has enabled people to you know households to continue to buy housing, even though it's become more and more expensive and more and more unaffordable. Um, so I think the you know the broader macroeconomic environment is is hugely important in all of this. Um, so, so does this lead to a bubble? I mean, are we finding ourselves in a, a different version of the two thousand eight two thousand nine housing crisis? Is is this sustainable? Um, I think I think the the reality is that um, you know we probably are in in in. In theoretical terms, um, I think it's unarguable that were interest rates to increase substantially um, across the, across those Western societies, which have seen the biggest house price increases, you know, including the UK, the US, Canada, certainly Australia and New Zealand, but also within continental Europe, Sweden seen one of the biggest increases in house prices of all. If you saw sustained increases in, in interest rates across those countries. I think it's unavoidable that you would see a significant shaking out in the housing market. You'd see people uh, defaulting on mortgages. You'd see foreclosures increasing in the same way that we that you did in the US around, well, between 2009 and 2012. Um, so I think the question there, though, is is what central banks are going to do about that? And and if you read between the lines, it's, in fact, you don't always have to just read between the lines. You can; it's pretty obvious that house prices are a big concern for central banks these days. And one of the things that I think that will um, make them hesitate to increase interest rates is precisely this concern that doing so could have a big, a big negative impact on the housing market. Um, but certainly, on paper, the concerns there's every reason to be just as concerned. Um, as back in 2006, 2007, for sure. Is is this an opportunity for larger land, landlords, um, you know, the big developer uh, corporation types to to season on on the smaller landlords, you know, the the mom and pop landlords, I guess you would call them. I think. I mean, I think that's. I think that's you know happening already. Um, you know, if, if you look at big um, institutional investors, big asset managers. Housing over the last decade or so has become one of their preferred asset classes around the world, and not just in the U.S. and Canada, but but, but across the but across much of Europe and Japan and China as well. Um, and I think you know the interesting story there is that is that um, you know around 2011, 12, 13, 14, what those big institutional investors were buying into was the fact that housing was so cheap. You know, there'd been this massive house price crash. In the US, and and the big investors could go into Phoenix, they could go into Seattle, they could go into other um, cities across the US, they could go into Los Angeles, 
and buy housing that was 40 or even 50% cheaper than it had been just three or four years previously. So they were buying in within the industry. They call that buying into distress. So that's what was happening back then. But what they then found was that you know, even when they were looking at, even when the market recovered across much of the US and other places, what they realized was they could buy housing that was not necessarily as cheap as it had been, but they could make money in other ways. And, and the principal way in which they could make money was by lifting rents. And, and, and they, they, they saw all sorts of different opportunities to do that. One of it was the fact that because of the housing crisis, the supply of new housing, um, fell dramatically. And so what you happened, what you had in lots of cities was, was a supply shortages. Um, you know, buoyant demand for rental housing, but a lack of new supply of rental housing, which literally just pushes rents up. So that was what investors were buying into in the latter half of the 2010 decade. And I think that's what they're buying into today. But for sure, if there was another house price crash, those same investors would be sitting and waiting, ready to snap up properties that households and smaller investors were forced to relinquish. Um, how do you, you know, I think, I think folks who live in cities like London and, and San Francisco, New York and Miami are very familiar with, uh, you know, this, this, this oligarch, I guess you could say, um, obviously it's more than oligarchs, but, uh, folks who are using cash, uh, to buy properties and, um, you know, two or three years ago in New York, the majority of properties being bought, um, in New York were being purchased by by foreign folks who were using it as their safe bank accounts. And of course, that affects the cost of living in the city, uh, everything, everything from the incentives um, for developers to to not pay taxes. It's just it, there's a there's a whole ecosystem that's built around it. Um, how is that playing into this economy, especially post COVID? I mean, is there um, with with the crisis of, of housing? I mean. Do you see folks are willing to address this? Uh, leadership in, in different countries are willing to really take it on. You know, um, I can't. I, I can't speak for the US case. Um, I think in, I can. They're both, not. <laughs> Don't worry. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, there you go. I think. In, I think in a couple of other cases, I think governments have done something. So, so both in the UK. And in the New Zealand cases, which are, which are both historically uh, territories with, with very rapid house price inflation, governments have um, taken measures to try to reduce um, um, the purchase of housing by uh, foreign um, buyers for the types of purposes you're talking about, the kind of safety deposit box um, strategy of housing acquisition. So, for example, in the UK now, um, um, the so the main so in the UK you typically pay a tax called a, a stamp duty tax, which is basically a land tax when you buy housing, and and the rates of stamp duty that are charged in the UK now to foreign buyers, in particular to foreign corporate buyers, are much much higher than they than they are for domestic individuals. And New Zealand's done something similar, I think. But the, the problem, right, is that it hasn't is that it hasn't really had much of an impact, and I think there's probably a, a couple of reasons for that. One is the fact that you know lots of these foreign buyers are so wealthy that a tax of 10, 12 percent, or whatever it might be, or or typically less than that, really has no has no impact 
um, um, it can be kind of just it can be absorbed because because of the amount of capital that's available is so is so significant. And then the other thing is is um, is is the COVID situation, which is which has been which is which has really um, entailed two things in a country like the UK. So the first is that you know lots of lots of those people who are in the market for buying property and able to buy property have not been greatly affected economically by by covid their incomes haven't gone down but they their expenditure has gone down and so money that they're not been spending on holidays or conspicuous consumption of other types has been plowed into the property market and the other thing is that governments including in the UK have kind of poured fuel on the house price fire by taking measures during covid which for most buyers probably weren't even necessary so they got they essentially um introduced a stamp duty holiday in the UK for most categories of domestic buyers. And so people rushed to, to put even more money into the property market before those stamp duty rates returned to their normal levels. And so for all those reasons, you've seen this you know, absurd inflation in property prices in countries such as the UK and New Zealand and Sweden during COVID, which nobody would have anticipated at the outset of the crisis. I'm glad they brought that up because there's also, this has been happening in um regions around the world, uh, states in the U.S., uh, re- you know, territories in the U.S., um, but also regions in Europe that are warmer weathered, where you see, especially those who've uh, experienced austerity, whether it's Italy, uh, Portugal, Greece, there are all these tax incentives, uh, Puerto Rico uh, in in the United States. Um, how is the housing market going to be affected in that capacity? I know that it's it's a, it's a little bit different. Um, still, still Western more or less, but uh, folks just I guess just to break it down for for people who may not be aware, um, you know, a lot of people wanted to go to warmer weather and <laughs> during COVID, stay outside, uh, stay healthy, be somewhere. You know, I think a lot of people realized that they could work from warmer climates. And as a result, uh, there was a, 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 an incredible buy-up of land um, and property in a lot of these regions, especially since they're more affordable. And, you know, and I'm, I'm in Greece right now. Uh, the neighborhood I'm in, I was shocked when I got here. I had no sense that there had been a roundup of properties here. I wasn't even aware that people wanted to live in this neighborhood, to be honest. Uh, but learning from neighbors that, you know, most of the people who come down are from Germany, um, other parts of, of, of Europe. And why not? Uh, if you have strong Wi-Fi, why not live in Greece during the COVID months? So how is that affecting this like rentier capitalism, like for, for folks, especially who live under austerity? Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> Excuse me. I mean, it's, it's not a particular topic, the, the, the one you're talking about that I know that I know much about. But for sure, that's happening. And I think it's also happening. It's important to point out a range of geographical scales. So it doesn't, you know, it doesn't just happen externally sorry transnationally across borders between say germany and spain or sweden and spain but it also happens uh, within countries as well so you know within the uk there's been all sorts of um um criticism about the fact that a lot of um you know relatively wealthy people from london have been buying up property in rural parts of the country that for them is relatively affordable but it pushes up prices in those parts of the country, meaning that people who actually live in those areas are now unable to buy property. So in a sense, it's the same, that's the same phenomenon occurring internally within countries as occurs um, 
across borders in the way that you were talking about. Um, and I suppose, you know, po policymakers in general are, are loath to do things about that. Um, you know, there continues to be great belief in allowing capital to flow freely in the way that other factors of production aren't, aren't allowed to, to flow freely. Um, um, and then there's also the other fact that, um, you know, in, 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 in countries such as Greece and certainly parts of southern Spain, um, you know, the local economy is to a significant, significant ex extent dominated by the real estate sector, dominated by the real estate sector. And, and, um, any kind of move to choke off the inflow of foreign capital into that real estate sector would be looked at, you know, very negatively by, by the local political class. And so I think it's, I think it's very unlikely to expect things to be, to be, to be done about that. But for sure, it has all sorts of nefarious and deleterious social consequences in those types of places. So where do you see, uh, I mean, especially given different governments' uh, reluctance to, to really protect renters um, and take on, uh, you know, these larger monopolies that are, are taking advantage of renters, where do you see this going post-COVID? I mean, I, I just... Is this sustainable? Is this, we talked about a bubble a few minutes earlier, but um, it's pretty bad right now. How much worse can it get? Yeah. I, it's, I mean, it's definitely not sustainable um, in, the, in the long term, but I think it, I think it would be, um, I think that it would be foolhardy to anticipate anything by way of significant change in in policy and in kind of the, the general political economic outlook on housing, you know, there's all sorts of reasons for that. But I think one that I always kind of come back to because important is that if you look at the elections and how they vote at elections. The distinction between property owners, housing owners, and non-owners, between between owners and renters, is is in many places incredibly stark. Um, I know that in the last general election in the U in the UK, um, the, the proportion of homeowners between the ages of say twenty five and fifty who voted at the election was about double. I think I'm right in saying the proportion of renters who actually voted. So never mind who they voted for, but renters typically don't vote anywhere as near as much as homeowners do. And that data is replicated across other, across other territories as well. And so what that means is that politicians inevitably pander to homeowners. Um, and the very last, the very last thing they want is any negative impact upon the well-being and wealth of homeowners. So they do everything in their power, really, to avoid any kind of um, any kind of negative shock to homeowner wealth in 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 the types of societies we've been talking about. I, I can't help but remember just a few months ago in New York. I don't know if, if you saw this news, but there was a New York City mayor's race. And uh, there were several candidates and the New York Times asked all of the candidates. The question, I think, was in itself a problem, but also the answers were extremely problematic. Uh, they asked the candidates, how much do you think an average home, you know, two, I think it was two bedroom home in Brooklyn costs and everything from 
you know, like eleven thousand dollars to you know four million dollars or five or six or eleven million uh, came out as the answers. But I, you know, my big concern was why are they asking the mayors, the the, the candidates for mayor? Uh, of New York, how much a home costs to purchase when the majority of New Yorkers are renters. That was my biggest concern. But then the last, obviously, was, you know, the folks yeah. who are running for mayor had, yeah. uh, you know, the, the the former, what was it, the, the head of, 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 of a major bank on Wall Street was the one who threw out, you know, $11,000. <laughs> yeah. I mean... I mean, the, the the point you talk about, I mean, you were talking about how sustainable all of this. I mean, one of the, obviously, I, I know we're kind of running out of time, but one of the really important okay. things to think about is is the fact that certainly in places like the UK and the US, home, own, home ownership rates are declining pretty fast, right? So um, as, because young people can't afford to buy, property is increasingly moving from the home ownership sector to the, to the, to the rental sector. And, and when you live in a society uh, like the UK or the US that is kind of culturally and socially invested in the home ownership dream, the, the more that a dream kind of begins to elude uh, increasing uh, proportions of people, the more that becomes politically problematic and the more housing becomes potentially a significant political issue. Um, the, I think the only other thing to throw into that, of course, though, is that um, there's a hugely significant intergenerational issue there, which is that um, even if young people can't increasingly can't afford to buy, some can, but the ones that can are those that receive the support from their parents or from or from or from family. And so, the, so the, what happens is the housing market becomes a kind of a, a vehicle for the intergenerational transmission of class inequality. So class inequalities get passed down from one generation to the next through the housing market. And for, sh- for sure that's happening in all of these countries that, that we're talking about at the moment um, and, has, and has been happening for years. Not to mention just inheriting uh, the properties. And this is, yeah. I mean, this is a, a major uh, piece of conversation when we talk about um, <laughs> the just race and class issues in America, which is a much bigger conversation in terms of the legacy of 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 slavery, um, but very very much so uh, tied to property. But final thoughts: anything that we missed, anything that we should be uh, keeping our eyes on, especially as we're in the middle of these fights. I mean, I think I think for, for me. You know, one of the questions people always ask, right, is, you know, what's the what's the route out of this? And I think the only um, the only kind of sustainable route out um, in the long term is is a rebalancing of tenures. And what I mean by that is that societies need to get away from the kind of ideology of home ownership, the idea that home ownership is is something that we should all aspire to. And that it's a kind of a superior way of living to renting, because it's precisely that ideology that makes people desperate to buy, and that and that fuels the kind of um, insane house price inflation that, that we've seen in recent years. So it's only by making renting a much more attractive tenure than it currently is that you get the desired outcomes, not only for renters but also on the home owning side. Because by by making renting a more desirable tenure, you make people less desperate to buy, 
and that in turn re reduces the um, kind of inflationary pressure on, on home ownership that is so evident at the moment. Um, and so I think that that's that's the ultimate sort of goal is to kind of get away from this ideology of home ownership. But that's a lot easier said than done. Okay, one more final question. Was there a moment in history somewhere on the planet where that was done to the best of your imagination? Yeah, you know, I think where I live, Sweden, um, in the in the 1970s, 1980s, um, te what what's called tenure equality or tenure neutrality. So this, so the idea that the tenure should be um, more or less equal both culturally but, but more importantly economically in terms of uh, what the economic implications for households are of owning and renting, that was an explicit policy goal. Um, and it, and it, it was never realised perfectly, um, but I think it was realised to a, to a significant extent. And I, I think it's, it was precisely the um, abandoning that um, meant that Sweden has ended up with precisely the same types of problems as, as, as throughout the rest of the Western world in the housing market. Cautionary tale, but also a model. Brett, thank you so much for, for writing this book. Very timely. Uh, thank you for joining us today. Love to have you back on if you ever want to come on the show and, and discuss uh, the, state, the state of rentier capitalism, <laughs> uh, which is a topic, obviously, we discuss a lot on the show, uh, but really appreciate you know, your work and our, uh, the, our, our audience, um, the folks who are part of our book club are currently reading the book. So I'm sure they'll have lots of extra questions if you ever want to come back on. Okay. Thank you again. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Stay safe. Thank you to everybody for joining us today on the Nomi Key Show for Femme Friday with one male. I can't believe we broke the rules today, but we, it was a little special segment. Uh, thank you for your patience as I'm sitting here uh, in, in an unstable power environment. The power has flickered a lot in the last few minutes. Uh, thank you to our guests. We had Sia Weaver and Janelle Jolly, as well as Brett Christophers. And thank you to Brad, who's been putting up with the power issues for the last few weeks, uh, as always, and Ruthie on our team and Dorsey as well. Thank you to everyone. All of our patrons and we will see you uh, on on wednesday but if you don't already have it in your calendar go check out the committee program which airs at 3 p.m eastern right here on the nomi key show on youtube and if you are uh subscribing to us on twitch you can go check out their twitch channel as well and their patreon uh and fans at fans.fm i believe it's the committee program we'll have it in the information section so you can go check it out but uh in the meantime thank you to all we're really appreciative for your patience and for your subscriptions and support and likes and, you know everyone who's in those chats you're always sending the love we adore you in the meantime stay in solidarity the no Mickey show momentarily for class solidarity cash circulating give the masses back its currency greed from elites oligarchs stay fed deep state faith fed everybody break bread racism homophobia sexism religion in this melted pot we live in time to build a new system unionize labor rights highlight the issue talking heads left is best the saga continues continues the no meeky show